Hello and welcome. You're listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes us far beyond our own solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. I'm Hugh Osborne, and as always, I'm joined by Andrew Rushby and Hannah Wakeford. And in this episode of Exocast, we're going to be covering a few of the month's most interesting papers. Uh, we've each focused on a single publication from the last few weeks, and we're going to cover them in science communication detail, I guess. Um, <laughs> so who's going to start? Actually, Hannah, you, you haven't picked a paper this month, right? No, I haven't, because I cheated. You <gasps> picked a conference. I picked an entire conference, which had many hundreds of papers associated with it that I just can't go into because that would exactly. take... A bang for your buck here in terms of coverage. Well, I mean, it would take an entire week, which is coincidental because that's how long Exoplanets 4 was. <laughs> so Exoplanets 4 was the first time in two years that a group of nearly 600 exoplanet scientists got together in Las Vegas, or I should really say Henderson, which is just outside of Las Vegas for probably tax reasons. I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's usually it. Usually the case. It's normally something like that. Uh, and that ran from May 1st to, to 6th. Um, and it was really amazing because one of the beauties of in-person conferences is just like the planets that we explore, people are three-dimensional. And that actually is more novel than it should be. Uh, <laughs> but it, it really, really was fantastic to see so many people. And there were so many people the week itself consisted of five days of exoplanet content. Each day really started with a plenary session. So this is held in the main room, a really big room where everyone comes together. And those consisted of longer talks, so about 30-minute review talks on a particular topic, followed by shorter contributed talks that weren't actually necessarily grouped by topic. They were a little bit of a mismatch of uh, uh, this and that. Yeah, it jumped around a bit, didn't it? It jumped around a lot. There didn't seem to be a huge amount of coherency, if I'm honest with you. (laughs) But I think that the idea was to make sure, because everybody's in this massive room together, that everybody's seeing bits and bobs of everything in exoplanet science. They're not kind of just focusing down on what they do. So it really exposes everybody to the whole field itself, I guess. So I think it's an interesting way of doing it. Sometimes I felt like a little bit frustrated because it just didn't have a it didn't have a story narrative and as storytellers as science communicators we want to create this story we want to create this journey and it did not have that um but I certainly I felt like I learned a huge amount from those because they there were again talks I wouldn't normally have gone to so that's that was really interesting and then throughout the days there were then parallel sessions so these are sessions that are held in in either smaller rooms or in this big room again at the same time So these are, you know, you'd have four or five talks that are happening simultaneously and you have to pick which one are you going to go see. But they run it like a very tight ship. So there are timings for these and you can run between rooms because you know exactly when a talk's going to begin and end. And that was really important for the organisers is that they they made sure you stuck to these times. So I was a session chair. So this meant that I had to kind of control the room. I had to be the keeping the it ship shape. Will the hammer. Yeah, me too. Although I, when I was session chair, was the, was my watch decided to get stuck at one time and I didn't realise. And I was like, oh, we'll go loads of time. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> and then I realised, oh no, my watch is just stuck. So oh. I, don't, I think I was responsible for some um, 
mismatching of time talk you know you talk broke starts, the system so. <laughs> but it does mean that people can kind of move between rooms and it, it yeah. while it was quite a big space so it wasn't the easiest thing to move between rooms uh it does mean that you can catch up on loads of different things and they had topics in, in these parallel sessions which were huge range they did future missions they did atmospheres formation habitability demographics interiors the stars themselves detection methods so they had separate sessions for transits rvs uh imaging so there was quite a quite a spread of different options that you could go to and learn about and and see people talking about their research so it's really kind of nice to, to have that of course I'm biased and I went to all the atmosphere sessions because I'm boring and you had a ton of we them. had so many of them because guess what guys atmospheres are the best there was like four or five atmospheres ones it's like there's only two transit sessions and then I had to find other stuff well you guys I mean you're just not cool enough obviously <laughs> It, it, it was really, really fantastic. But in addition to these plenaries and these parallel sessions, there are actually also a number of what are called splinter sessions. And those sessions were organized by community members themselves. So the rest was built up by what we call the SOC, the Scientific Organizing Committee, a group of people who decide what talks get picked from the submitted abstracts. But these splinter sessions were organized by community members and then designed by those community members to cover a particular topic. And, and we had... A range of those, again, from precision radial velocities, which you can hear a lot more about uh, on our previous episode this month, where we interviewed an expert in precision radial velocities, Dr. Jennifer Burt. That's in Exocast 60B. And they also had ones on the future of comparative exoplanetology. So how can we learn more about planets as a population? Uh, escaping atmospheres. Again, we've heard a lot about the importance of understanding how an atmosphere changes with time. And there was also a really nice splinter session on the brown dwarf exoplanet connection. So brown dwarfs, they're much, much larger in mass than, than our planetary friends, but they're not quite stars. And there's this connection between their atmospheres and how they, they change with time and, and especially bringing that together as we move into the future. So I found that to be a really positive meeting. That splinter session was really, really nice. But another thing that's really good about these splinter sessions is they were hybrid. So the rest of the conference was very much designed as we're going to get everybody together in person. But these splinter sessions were hybrid sessions. So we had some people calling from around the world, presenting remotely. Uh, and this actually allowed to widen the participation of the meeting a little bit, which is, which is never a bad thing. So it was really nice to be kind of in one of those sessions and be part of that and try and you know, hear from people who couldn't necessarily make it uh, to Las Vegas. Hopefully if that's one thing we take from the last two years is that improved hy hybridization of, of meetings, hopefully. Um, and that it can be done. And occasionally there were people who felt for travel reasons or accessibility reasons were left out. Hopefully we can we can use the, the positives from the necessity of doing this to improve the hybridization in the future. I think it did need a little bit more. Mm. I think it, it tried. I'm surprised to hear it was so specifically in person. I get that. But yeah, I'm surprised to hear there wasn't more, you know, plenaries being you know broadcast and, and the like. I mean, there were technical difficulties in every single one of the splinter sessions. So as you can imagine, it's it's no easy feat. Yeah. So we haven't really learned too much <laughs> in the last two years. One of the things about the Exoplanet series this year, it was sponsored by the, the AAS, which actually meant that there was a lot of technology. The AAS, the American Astronomical Society, actually provides a huge amount of technology that they've kind of honed over the years 
that works really well to create a smooth meeting where you can run parallel sessions and they can be timed to the minute because they have this system where they bring it in, they ship everything in and they set it up. So it was a nice collaborative effort between the AAS this year for this Exoplanet series, which hasn't had that before. So I, I found that quite quite good. I always find it quite reassuring because you know it's going to work when they're running things. Normally. Normally. <laughs> Um, another excellent component of the the meeting was the poster sessions. So if you didn't get a talk, you probably got given a conciliatory poster. I applied directly for a poster because I'm like, I know I'm going to get it. <laughs> um, and at XO4, these were held in like a large hangar-like room. It looked like an yeah. inflatable. I'm not really sure what it was. It clearly couldn't be. But it was this massive hangar-like room right out the back of the venue. And there were hundreds of posters in there across all of the fields that we mentioned. And I absolutely love poster sessions because it gives me the time and the ability to think about something, but also talk to the person who's been doing that research in a little more detail. And I don't feel like I get that so much from talks. And that's also something that, you kind of struggled with a little bit more in the online components. I think we had things like Gavatown, which worked really well for posters, but they weren't used as, as often. So it was really nice to go around and talk to people about their posters. And actually, that was where I spent a huge amount of my time. Every single coffee break, I'd had a message from somebody, would you come see my poster? Would you come talk to us? Would you know? I'd love to talk through some of the research we we're doing. And it also allowed me to meet so many people I've been working with over the last two years and never seen in person, yeah, which was really weird, but really awesome yeah. as well. There was one person I met who I actually worked with now because I'm remembering dates and times four years ago, if I think about it. And that's ridiculous to me, but we'd never met. And it was really nice to just chat through what they're working on now and how all of the things they've been doing have been informed by the stuff that we did so long ago. And it was just really nice opportunity for that. I think the poster session, the only problem was there wasn't a, an actual, you know, real poster session where you were supposed to go and defend your poster or, you know, stand next to it. It was all just, well, go go there if you've got time or during the coffee. Oh, that is Which odd. was a shame. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they did hold the afternoon coffee sessions were in that poster hall, but it, it wasn't as dedicated as it could have yeah. been. And for 500 posters, it wasn't enough time. <laughs> oh, nowhere near enough time. Absolutely nowhere near enough time. Um, it was really nice. I went to see Hugh's poster. Hugh also had a poster there as well. Uh, and actually, next to his poster was some uh, UC Santa... Much more interesting poster. <laughs> oh, much more interesting poster. Way more interesting. Some 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 UC Santa Cruz students who, who were like, oh my God, I'd love to talk to you about my poster. And I ended up going on a tour around three different students' posters that... That was fantastic. So thank you, thank you, Hugh, for being next to some really interesting posters. <laughs> oh, that's good stuff. Yeah, it is always good stuff. But again, I found quite a lot of it, you know, I stuck to my niche, but I also then the way that it was set up allowed me to explore a little bit more in exoplanet science and try and kind of look around and say, well, what is the stuff that I don't know and what can I learn about? Um, and one of the plenary sessions that I found on this was that really, really well done um, was by Alyssa Delgado Mena. And this was on the star planet connection. So they were specifically looking at what do we know about these host stars? What materials are in their atmosphere? How much 
what are the elemental abundances? What is the activity indicators? And how important are those for us to understand these planets? And that's something, as someone who looks at the atmospheres of these worlds and goes, oh, we can measure this amount of oxygen in its atmosphere. And hopefully with the James Webb Space Telescope, we can measure this amount of carbon in its atmosphere. And thinking, actually, it's really important that we know those values for the star as well. And, and they gave a really nice plenary on that, I felt. And then there was another one from a, a long-standing guest of ExoCast, uh, Jesse Christensen, who we interviewed in ExoCast 30B. And Jesse actually was talking in one of the splinter sessions, the Enabling Future Comparative Exoplanetology. And what I found really nice about this talk is it was on demographics, so understanding the population of planets. And she asked the question is, what do we need to know when we stop asking ourselves that question, what is A to Earth? How many Earth-like planets are out there around a Sun-like star or on an Earth one-year orbit? What's the other really important questions we should be asking of our demographics? Does it matter what star you're around? How many Jupiters are there? How many planets do we have where it's small on the inside, big on the outside? These other questions which have kind of essentially been neglected because we've been so focused on this A to Earth question. There's a huge amount of information that informs that, that we're starting to get the data to be able to expand our ideas and be a little bit more even in the way in which we think about these planetary systems and perhaps a little bit less egotistical, I'm hoping. So I, I found that as a, here's a set of questions that we can go after Let's stop focusing in on ourselves a little bit and see if we can look outwards. So I, I found that good. But Hugh, you were also there. It was fantastic. We got to got to hang out and got to see each other in yep. person rather than over Zoom, as we always do. We got to collectively give out dozens of stickers. So many Exocast <laughs> stickers went around. I got as many people as I possibly could with yeah. those, and so did Hugh. So that's that's really nice as well. We can get the merchandise out there. <laughs> but what did you find from the meeting? How did you find it? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I think... One of the nice things is that you can learn of papers that haven't been published yet, right? You get this in, insight into new results that you didn't realize were on, on the pipeline. And so there were a couple of new unpublished test planets, which are really interesting. You know, TESS was kind of designed with a, with, with, a, with a goal of providing small planets that James Webb can characterize around M dwarfs. And there are a couple of planets coming, one f that B Bjorn Benecke presented, where Spitzer was used to find um, even more planets, and one that Elsa Ducrot presented, where it was Speculus. Speculus is, is finally proving itself useful. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. <laughs> but, <laughs> you just did. So that was really cool, just these new test planets coming out, which, um, which, which are going to be super interesting for, for James Webb. There was also, some, you know, there's still Kepler results coming out. There are a couple of cool Kepler talks one on new ttv masses for dozens of new planets or dozens of old planets i guess in this case and one for new young planets where um, we've only found some kepler stars to be young through gaia and then you can go back and confirm the, the planets around the young stars and and they really fill in some of the gaps of knowledge that we have in terms of um, evolution of, of planets through time Here's me talking about how I learned loads of diverse things about exoplanets across many topics. And here's Hugh going, oh, there's so many new discoveries. And yeah. I looked at all the discovery stuff. I did. Hugh, branch out a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was a nice formation plenary from Constantine Bastion. I, I found that really interesting. But I guess that's because it's one of these things that feeds into the detections that I'm in interested <laughs> in. And the same with um, a really cool talk from, from Rafa Luque on 
basically how half of all the planets around M dwarfs that we found have 50% water in them. And it's pretty, it's looking pretty clear that that's the case. And so they must be formed beyond the ice line and be migrated in. And, and there's this dichotomy between the ones that are rocky and the ones that are, are, are water, you know, ice, icy, icy built bodies, basically. So that was really cool. And those were the kind of like the highlights for me. But there was, yeah, as you say, a ton of posters and a ton of uh, interesting plenaries outside my field, uh, but which, I, which I also enjoyed. Yeah, I think that kind of just sum up that this was this was a very, you know, this was a large meeting. It's not often that you get about 600 people in one scientific topic. This was just on exoplanets. And you had so many people coming together and just talking about it all week. And it, it, it became quite exhausting towards the end, but it was worth it. It was it was so worth it. Um, and I had a fantastic time and I, I got talking to so many people. I got to introduce people to each other for the first time. And it was just, it was really refreshing. Um, and it was something that... I don't, I think a lot of us realized we needed, but we didn't realize how much we needed it. So yeah. it was, it was really, really nice to be there. So here's to the future of potentially more meetings in person, but also trying to bring this, this blended way of hosting meetings where we can get as many people as involved uh, as possible. Yeah. I guess the good thing, even though it wasn't hybrid, is that the Exo4 talks were all recorded and they'll all be on YouTube at some point. They will all be available. And I certainly intend to go look at all the ones I missed from the Splinter sessions and what have you. I'm looking forward to Exo5. Yeah, which will be in Europe this time, so no more 12-hour flights or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's move on to some of the papers that have come out this month. So, Hugh, why don't you take us through, I'm guessing, a discovery of some kind? <laughs> you know me too well. Well, we're recording this at the end of May, but when this is released, Gaia DR3 will have just come out. So um, that will be the third big re data release from the Gaia mission. So it makes sense that we should talk a little bit about what Gaia is capable of and what, what Gaia does. And so I picked a, a paper using, using Gaia data, although obviously not one of the DR3 releases because we haven't got those to talk about just yet. So just as a recap, so Gaia, it has two mirrors where it observes two parts of the sky simultaneously, basically, and this is part of how it works so well. So it scans the sky over time and, 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 and these two mirrors focus on parts of the sky um, I think 100, 100 and something degrees apart. And this results over the course of the, the four-year initial mission of about between 40 and 250 observations for every star in the sky. And during each of these scans where the star passes through the mirror and through the detector, Gaia is able to eke out as much information as possible from every single star and galaxy, I guess. Um, so you can get really precise relative position information of, of the stars Obviously, that's that's what Gaia is known for. But you can also get low-resolution spectroscopy. Every single pass, it goes through a slit, and you can split the light up into colours, and you get spectra. And you get photometry, so how bright the star, the, the star is at this precise moment in time. So the most important of these is, of course, the position information. These are incredibly precise, you know, for 60 milliarc second. Um, I always... I always have to look up and remind myself exactly what that means. It means basically if there was a spotlight being shone at the Earth from Venus, Gaia would be able to tell where it is to roughly 10 meter precision. So it's it's quite it's quite precise. <laughs> that's quite that's quite accurate. And you know, monitoring stars so precisely is basically how Gaia can find the distances by using the parallax effect, but also how it's been able to build up maps of the relative motions and velocities of stars, and even how it will be used in, in future data releases, at least, to find giant planets which disturb the motion of the star as, as it moves across the sky. But 
I don't want to talk about any of that. What I want to talk about is the photometry that, that Gaia is able to do. So thanks, because it's in space and it's got excellent detectors and there's no kind of noise from any atmosphere getting in the way, it's able to get really precise photometry of, of the stars in the sky. Um, so that means, you know, counting up the photons that the, the star is providing and, and giving you a really est precise estimate of how bright it is. And so basically all of the stars in the sky brighter than magnitude 13. So that's about 3 million stars. So quite even, even more than what tests can really observe, um, should have better than 1% photometry errors. So this is kind of the important value because this 1% is also the signal you get from a transiting Jupiter-sized planet. So if you can do better than 1% uncertainty in how bright the stars are, you can actually start maybe detecting exoplanets um, through transit. And actually, because a lot of these stars have been observed 100, maybe 200 times, it means you actually get a reasonably good chance that multiple observations, even if you're sampling randomly, are actually falling during the transit, especially of hot Jupiters, so things on, on planets shorter than the five days. So this was kind of a question that was posed pre-launch. Will Gaia detect exoplanets using photometry? And I was honestly kind of sceptical. I, I kind of thought it wouldn't, wouldn't manage it. I thought that, you know, because Gaia samples stars really sparsely um, and observations like that, especially from the ground, are often really dominated by noise, by systematic noise and by stellar noise. So I thought, you know, people way back pre-transit detection said that they could find thousands of exoplanets this way, but and then they couldn't because there was all this extra noise they didn't anticipate. Mm. I thought that would be the same for Gaia. Well, I was wrong because uh, <laughs> this week there was a paper from Aviad Panahi and team called The Detection of Transiting Exoplanets by Gaia, and they presented transiting exoplanets that were detected by Gaia. So so this was Aviad and members of Gaia's Data Processing Consortium, and they basically tried their luck at trying to find transiting planets using the photometry through the variable star group that, that ESA has. And because there are so many stars, we're talking about more than a billion stars that need to be processed through this pipeline, it's not possible to run a transit search on every single one. That's way too uh, intensive. So what they actually did was they built this classifier using a, a, a kind of a decision tree, and they used the known planets, which they had photometry for, as their training set, and used that to create a classifier which they could run on all 1 billion plus stars, and produce a candidate list, even without doing any period, you know, transit model matching. And they got something like 20,000 candidates from this, which was manageable enough for them to, to run transit models on the light curves and figure out which ones had planets or not. And then they, they combined this with some vetting of false positives to get a short list of about 89 good planet candidates from, from Gaia. And actually what they did was they looked at test photometry because TESS is observing the whole sky and even if it isn't a test candidate, there's likely still a light curve, which is better than what Gaia has. And so ma the majority of this list was actually eclipsing binaries, which they only found out by looking at the test photometry. But about 21 of the 890 candidates also looked like transits in tests. And the most promising two candidates, um, both were about 1.3 Jupiter radii on around three-day orbits, so classical hot Jupiters, uh, orbiting sun-like stars as well. They followed these up with the Pepsi, which was a spectrograph on the LBT, and they found that these were indeed planets. So they confirmed them as Gaia 1b and Gaia 2b and revealed masses of about 1.7 and 0.8 Jupiter masses. So Gaia 1 and Gaia 2b, we're talking about planets detected in transit from, from Gaia, which is really, really cool. And it proves that Gaia is capable of finding many more exoplanets. You know, this is just from a kind of non-exhaustive search that they did. I think it's noting it's worth noting, though, that you know, this was really only 
possible because Tess is also covering the whole sky. Because without Tess, they would have had you know a list which was mostly eclipsing binaries. And so it would be much less efficient to actually find which of that list is planets. Uh, it's also worth noting that this niche that Gaia has for finding transiting planets is really hot Jupiters around faint stars. So we're talking about the reason these aren't test candidates is because they're too faint for tests, anyone to bother looking in tests for, for them, <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid to say. And so at, at 13th mag, um, Gaia 1b is kind of very low down on the list of what James, James Webb will, will actually um, target. So it's very unlikely any of these the planets that Gaia will find will be useful for characterization efforts in, in the near future. But I think it is certainly a testament to the extreme precision of, of Gaia's photometry that it's able to find exoplanets this way. And I'm sure that those time series um, will be extremely useful, not just for, for finding transiting hot Jupiters, but from everything else, from stellar variability to microlensing events to finding you know weird stuff that's making stars go bump in the night kind of thing. Because we've got talking about 1.3 billion stars with, with photometry, right? So there's going to be some strange stuff in there. We just need to go looking for it. Of course, in order for us to be able to actually do any science with this data, we need it to be published. <laughs> and yeah. it's not. This team were using uh, proprietary data through the ESA-Gaia mission, but we don't have access to that. What we might, well, what we should have access to through DR3 is any star that's been classified variable. So the photometry of those stars, including the planets that were published in this paper. So they were going to release those as variable stars. And also there's a section of sky, I think, around the, the large melanogenic cloud, which they're releasing all of the photometry for in DR3. So those should be out now. But for all of the other targets that we're interested in, and certainly there are some targets where I am crying for, I'm emailing the, that team saying, give me photometry. And they say, no, you have to wait two years <laughs> because the R4 is still two years away. And uh, I think that's personally a crying shame because obviously this, this data is there and it is very, very interesting. But that's how it goes. You just got to wait, unfortunately, to, um, to get that. But I think it's, it's a very interesting paper and it, and it really does prove how precise Gaia is. Yeah, and it's, it's from a... Again, it's from a transit, right? And like you said, it couldn't have been done without tests, you know, making that an incredibly efficient process. But that's not what people thought when, when we were talking about Gaia. They're, they're like this astrometry method, this actually process of watching the star move physically on the sky because it's so good at pointing. It's so good at finding the precise relative position of the star itself. Physically watching it move around on the sky is how people thought we'd get the most planets. And... And again, that's a couple of years away. They, they think yeah. that we'll be able to get a massive catalogue of those. But the fact that they're able to do it in the time series is really nice. It's really promising that there, there are some other things out there. But like you said, the, the dimmer stuff. But what that gives us is that understanding of these giant planets around dimmer stars, which we just haven't been looking for. We just didn't need to look for it. <laughs> So I think it will help fill in that population. And again, yeah. with that comparison to TESS, I think it will also help fill in our understanding of some of these variable stars as well, these eclipsing binaries. So the DR3, which is uh, out on June 13th, is going to actually finally tell us which of the stars they've looked at are binary stars rather than just assuming that they're all individual stars, which they almost certainly are not. So each yeah. each. Gaia data release, we get more information, but it just never feels like quite enough, does it? I'm just waiting for DR4. That's going to be the big one. Okay. Because <laughs> we will we will get thousands of exoplanets that way. And, and, you know, unlike these transiting ones where we just get a radius, we don't actually know with a radius whether it's a planet. It could be a, could be a brown dwarf, mm. could be a, an EB. When you have a mass, you know 
you know, it can't be 13 Jupiter masses or higher. It's, you know, only four Jupiter masses. So it's a planet. So that that will be instantaneous thousands of planets in two years time. So that that's the thing to watch out for, I think. Okay, um, Andrew, your last up. So, what have what have you gone for this month? Uh, something different, but you know, very much in my in my wheelhouse, of course, on the habitabil- habitability biosignatures side of things, is a paper called "Can Carbon Fractionation Provide Evidence for Aerial Biospheres in the Atmospheres of Temperate Sub-Neptunes?" Talked a little bit about temperate sub-Neptunes, not just on this show, but also on our previous uh, episode with uh, Dr. Jennifer Burt. Uh, but this is a very catchily titled paper uh, published in um, AppJ earlier this month, and it caught my eye for a number of reasons. So, firstly, as I said, temperate sub-Neptunes always interesting. Uh, secondly, the concept of an aerial biosphere has somewhat recently re-entered, uh, for me at least. Um, maybe some Venus fans might feel otherwise, but it's re-entered the kind of astrobiology consciousness or habitability realm with the purported detection of phosphine, a possible biosignature gas in the atmosphere of Venus in 2020, which we discussed at some length uh, on the show, the detection, the various controversies surrounding it, and that was on Exocast 48C, I believe. So if you want to learn a little bit more about that. And the reason that that was interesting is because the phosphine would likely have come from something like an aerial biosphere, likely not on the surface of Venus. Um, so an aerial biosphere would likely be some sort of algae, bacteria, analogue suspended in water vapour clouds in uh, low-density atmospheres, uh, completing, unlike Venus, uh, completing their life cycle while suspended in a, a kind of temperate, uh, you know, not too hot, not too cold, but still photosynthetically active region of the atmospheric column before, you know, descending maybe to regions where it's too hot, uh, too dark to survive when they're, they're too big or something. Um, so technically plausible, uh, I guess, but it's it's on the limits of, of feasibility when it comes to habitability research, at least. In particular, this paper looks at the plausibility of detecting a metabolic fractionation of carbon isotopes, specifically carbon-12 and carbon-13, of CO2. Um, so they, they considered uh, methane and, um, and carbon monoxide by focusing alone on the carbon atom of CO2 uh, in this case, specifically in the atmospheres of sub-Neptunes. So those are planets larger than the Earth, but smaller than about 17 uh, Earth masses. So why? Why sub-Neptunes? Why not terrestrial planets that you know we often focus on for habitability research? Well, the authors say that, well, not just the authors, but it's it's well known that these planets will be more easily observable with JWST due to their larger radii, their poofy hydrogen-dominated atmospheres. Um, and the authors are actually also building on some earlier research from their group, suggesting that it might be possible to support a putative photosynthesizing biosphere in water vapor clouds in temperate sub-Neptune atmospheres. So it's very much a follow-on from a previous hypothetical paper about the possibility of that in terms of you know the metabolic um, metabolic processes. This is more the can we actually do it? Can we actually detect it? Paper. So, um, carbon isotope fractionation uh, is a biosignature. It's not necessarily new, um, especially here on the Earth. It's a well-known, you know, biosignature. But in my opinion, it's not a particularly good one for remote detection of things on, on exoplanets, for example. So a quick refresher, the metabolic processes that are involved in, in being alive, namely photosynthesis, chemosynthesis, respiration, decomposition of organic matter, those all use or preferentially uptake lighter isotopes of carbon. Um, and therefore, any deposits that are biotic or, or biologic origin preserve that signal and subsequently also have a higher carbon 12 to 13 ratio, allowing us to determine that the sample, uh, or in this case, maybe a spectroscopic feature, has a biological origin. So in theory, uh, a biosignature. 
But there are so many abiotic pro processes that can uh, affect isotopic fractionation, um, photochemistry and, and volcanism, just to name a couple. And of course, we don't know the, the baseline carbon fractionation values for a whole bunch of exoplanet systems. So that's a, that's a big unknown. That could be affected by lots of things, including the metallicity of the, the protoplanetary disk from which they form and any nearby uh, you know, cool evolved stars as well. Furthermore, actually, if you look at the solar system, the uh, the Earth, in terms of its bulk carbon fractionation, uh, doesn't really stand out, despite being the only planet that we know of that has photosynthesizing biosphere on it. So it's not particularly great for remote detection, but certainly if we find a sample on Earth, we can determine, usually from its carbon isotope ratio, whether it uh, has some biological processing involved. Nevertheless, I th think it's still intriguing to consider this possibility, whether it might be possible to uh, remotely detect this fractionation in the atmosphere as a planet that photosynthesizing life have made their home, which I think is quite nice. So in order to do this, the authors uh, simulated a series of observations using 10 transits of JWST's PRISM instrument, and they used temperate nearby sub-Neptunes with hydrogen-dominated atmospheres orbiting uh, M-dwarf stars. So they found that in the case of an atmosphere with similar molecular abundances to the Earth, a signal uh, of a signal to noise of about 9.1 of carbon isotope fractionation was indeed detectable in the 4.3 to 4.5 uh, kind of mid-infrared window, but only, only, only in that very idealized case. So assuming a much higher and probably more realistic metallicity, about a Neptune-like uh, metallicity of about 100 times solar, the signal is undetectable in both the two different m resolution modes that they used for PRISM, uh, as well as some ground-based telescopes that they investigated as well. And in fact, the authors are <laughs> super honest and refreshingly frank about the prospects of using carbon isotope fractionation of CO2 as a biosignature. And I quote, uh, the future of using carbon fractionation to assess signs of life on remote worlds is not bright. <laughs> which I appreciate in its frankness and directness. Of course, if we do then detect a signal in some serendipitous case uh, with an un as of yet unknown disequilibrium chemistry, uh, it would still remain difficult, if not impossible, to determine if what we were seeing was actually life or, or some other abiotic process imparting this fractionation signal. One thing I noticed, however, is that the authors didn't really consider the possibility of looking at this signal in concert with another potential biosignature or anti-biosignature. And I might have suggested something like the appearance of a, of a tetraoxide co collisional complex in the planet's visible or near-infrared spectrum. So these strong O4 uh, features indicate that uh, an oxygen-rich atmosphere uh, is likely to be too massive to be produced biologically, uh, instead probably resulting from photochemically driven water loss as opposed to oxygenic photosynthesis. So you could combine maybe those two uh, biosignatures to get a better picture of things. Um, of course, you could also look for carbon monoxide in the mid-infrared, which I think is actually quite difficult, deferring to my uh, observer colleagues in the virtual studio here. I think that's going to be very difficult to do anyway, but if we could look for carbon monoxide in that, in that kind of window, it might also suggest oxygenation of the atmosphere via CO2 photolysis as opposed to photosynthesis. So you have two or probably multiple ways of determining if you detect oxygen uh, or you're thinking that oxygen might be produced by life, if you're looking specifically for oxygenic photosynthesis anyway, that you can uh, determine whether it was at least abiotic or not uh, in, in this case. So I think it might help us to, to paint a, just a clearer picture. The more detections we get, the more biosignatures or anti-biosignatures we combined, the better. Um, and as I said, I appreciate that the authors were very clear uh, uh, and upfront about the difficulties or, frankly, the near impossibility of detecting these isotopologues in sub-Neptunes using 
current near future observatories because we don't often report negative results. And I think even these are incredibly valuable for our ongoing efforts to understand and characterize exoplanet atmospheres. We need to know what can be done, what has been done, uh, and if it's possible to do this. We don't want people to, to look at this again and, and come to the same conclusion um, down the line when this work has already been done. And the, the conclusion, I guess, of the paper is that the biosignatures that we've been focusing on and that JWST will focus on, namely oxygen, ozone, methane, nitrous oxide, methyl chloride, some sulfur gases. Um, these were suggested uh, a few years ago uh, at the Exoplanet Biosignatures Workshop that I took part in, and we've talked about a lot and lots of papers that came out from that. We did consider um, carbon isotope fractionation there, but given the difficulty of detecting it remotely we didn't investigate it as much detail as we could have done and this paper has actually showed us that it's likely not going to be possible which is still useful to know however they you know suggested that it's still interesting to look at this um, uh, kind of aerial biosphere option um, what with the detection of maybe phosphine from venus and considering the diversity of origin of life uh, studies as well do we need a surface for life is is maybe the question to, to look at here so while it was maybe a null detection or a, a negative result, I think I still think an important one. Uh, and uh, I, I enjoyed the paper and I think they, they did a good job of being very honest and clear and, and direct about their results because arguably they did find it was possible to detect a signal at a reasonable signal to noise, but you had to have an incredibly specific Earth-like atmosphere, which, which probably wouldn't be the case. However, they could have focused on that and made a big deal. And uh, that's, that's kind of why I like this paper for a number of reasons. Hannah's looking unconvinced. <laughs> no, I have absolutely no problem with that. Um, I have a problem with the targets that they've picked mm. to simulate, which are too bright for the prism mode that they're simulating. So you couldn't look at these targets with James Webb with that particular mode because there you would saturate the detector. So I have it. I only have an issue on a on a technical yeah. level uh, as somebody who would look at these designed observations and go, "That's not possible." Uh, you need to pick a different target. Interesting. You need to pick a different mode. There's actually so a lot of this of what they're showing you, and you mentioned it in your summary, is that there's this feature, especially in CO two around 4.3 to 4.5 microns. There's a mode on James Webb which is specifically designed to look at that, that wavelength range, and it, it does it at much higher resolution than the prism mode. So I, I only have an issue on a, on a very technical observer hat. Uh, That's our favourite issues, <laughs> the technical having, having to design these kinds of observations uh, and, and actually try and get something from them, uh, it wouldn't be able to do it. But they say they can't do it anyway, so... <laughs> <laughs> So it seems like they didn't bring in someone from JWST with the knowledge that you have to maybe inform their simulations here, right? That might have improved, improved the methods. I mean, you can simulate anything with James Webb. Um, you can simulate something that isn't technically feasible. Okay. That's why when you put in a proposal to do observations, there is a checkbox that the, the panel have to go through and go, is this technically feasible? There's a reason for that, because there are some things that just aren't. Um, and that's, that's, yeah. That's going to be one of them. Well, I thought an interesting paper nonetheless. Uh, and as I say, the, the, the Frank and Curtness caught, caught my attention as somewhat being an outlier. But did you not get a hint of that at the beginning? Because any paper which starts with a question, the answer is no, right? Isn't that the rule? <laughs> yes, yeah. that's true. That's the rule of thumb, isn't it? Yeah, I actually, in my script, I removed the, the first line, which was a spoiler, no. <laughs> because, as you say, they... Um, yeah, that's, that's Benford's law, is it? Or is that some... Wait, no, that's something else. There is, a, there is supposed to be a law, one of those... Uh, one of those 
um, qualitative. If one of our listeners knows what that's called, yeah, tweet us, yeah. let us know. That, because be good it's definitely a thing, right? You ask a question in a title, you know the answer's going to be no. Better Ridge's Law, that's what it is. Better Ridge's Law, there we go, dear listeners. Um, and uh, it holds up. We have yet another data point that suggests if you if you ask a question in the title of a paper, the, the question's probably no. <laughs> Spoiler. Okay, well, that seems maybe like a good place to um, to sum up the news for this month. A lot of interesting discussions there from the conference to some detections to some interesting potential biosignature detections. But definitely look out for our other episode this month where we had a great chat with JPL scientist Dr. Jen Burt about some extreme precision radial velocity techniques, uh, amongst other things. Um, a great episode and highly recommend uh, listening to Jen talk about her, her scientific career and the work that she's doing. Really cool stuff. Uh, of course, please do let us know what you think about the show through Twitter at exo underscore cast or on our website, exocast.org, where you can find all of our previous shows. You can help support the show and the Exocast team by heading over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash exocast. Each coffee is just four bucks and every donation over $15 will get you a shout out on the show. Uh, a big thank you to all of our past donors who keep supporting us and keep this uh, recording possible. Um, so a big, a big thank you to them. You can also get your hands on some great Exocast merchandise. I'm currently wearing my Exocast t-shirt and I can see uh, Hannah's got her Exocast light box behind her there. You can get t-shirts, you can get stickers. Uh, lots of Exocast stickers were handed out recently, so maybe those are, are, are floating around out there. Let's see them on your laptops, please. And more <laughs> at exocast.threadless.com. So go and check it out. I believe that we also have a sale going on, uh, which we have no control over, but I just saw it appearing in my uh, inbox that we have, <laughs> we have a sale going on apparently at exocast.threadless.com. Uh, so go and check that out for some, for some cheap merch. Exocast is edited by our editing whiz, Fergus Hall, and is available wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, thanks as always for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to Exocast. The Exocast team is Hugh Osborne, Chaos Test Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Bern in Switzerland, Hannah Wakeford, a lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol in the UK, Andrew Rushby, a lecturer in astrobiology at Burbeck University of London in the UK. Our podcast is edited by Fergus Hall and made possible through your donations. Find out more at exocast.org.